Hello, welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green. This is the podcast which accompanies Orthopaedic Research UK's new one-day intensive course in paediatric orthopaedics. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Dubai. Uh, once again, my friend and colleague, Michalis Kokonakis, is joining us from London. Good evening, Michalis. Welcome. Uh, good evening, Gavin. Uh, I have to say, uh, I, feel, um, I feel very honoured today to have such a special guest uh, to talk to us about his tips and advice when it comes to the FSS Vivas and clinical exams. I was his fellow. He's very experienced. He's a great person. And uh, I'd like everyone to welcome uh, Tahi Khan, a consultant surgeon at Royal National Orthopedic Hospital. Uh, and then we can certainly all benefit from his uh, advice and suggestions. Hello, Tahi. Hi. Hi, Michaelis. Hi, Gavin. Uh, it's good to be here. Well, thanks very much for, for your time, Tahir. So you're a very experienced paediatric orthopaedic surgeon and you've got a particular interest, I know, in hip pathology and young adult hip pathology, but it's with your examiner's hat on that we really wanted to pick your brains today. And you were explaining before we hit the record button, you've been an examiner for 12 years now, is that correct? That's correct. So I've been examining for the FRCS orthopaedics and trauma in the UK for about 12 years and for the international FRCS art for the last two years. So in that time, you've seen a lot of candidates take the exam. And we have previously recorded a podcast from a recent candidate's point of view. What we really wanted to get today was your perspective from an examiner's point of view. And I mean, there's so many things that, that we would like to discuss. But to sort of kick off with, perhaps you can give us some of your top tips to, to pass on to the people on the course for what you think they would benefit from in terms of their exam technique or specifics about tackling cases uh, what what advice would you give somebody who's facing you on the other side of the table? Thank you. Yeah. So so I think there's no substitute for preparing for the exam. So the, the knowledge, the base knowledge has to be there. So if you do not have the basic understanding of, let's say in this case, children's orthopedic services or surgery, uh, but also in more general orthopedics, then uh, there's no hiding. The examiners will find it out. So it's a very broad-based exam. There's not a lot of depth in, in the questions, but there's a lot of breadth in knowledge. So the breadth of knowledge is important. Uh, we talked about the general uh, preparation. So having a, a calm attitude, not rushing things into it, listening to the question is very, very important, uh, and not having a, a preconceived idea what the uh, examiner is going to ask you. So, for example, a lot of candidates feel as if it's a competition. So they're, they're there to prove the examiner wrong, for example. And that's not how it is. It's, it's literally a, a very glorified clinical scenario when you're having a conversation with your consultant who might be checking out how well have you read about that particular pathology. And I suppose third and, and, uh, and probably quite, quite important uh, bit is not to contradict. Even if you think the examiner is wrong, sometimes staying quiet is, is not a bad idea. <laughs> okay. Do you feel, uh, just to reassure everybody who's taking the exam, because um, you've had a lot of experience in, in running them, it's a fair exam? Oh, definitely. I, I think uh, there's about 90 plus opportunities to score the marks. And very rarely the same examiner meets the same candidate. So the examination board makes every effort to rotate the candidates and examiners around. And marking is... is at the end of the day, examiners only have three or four uh, discriminatory marks. So six being the pass mark. You know, I've, in, in the last 12 years, I've probably given four, maybe three or four times. Uh, 
So the, the four is a really bad fail. We like candidates to get sevens and eights. It's always a, a good day at work when a lot of candidates get seven and eight. So I suppose from the candidate's point of view, if you think you answered most of the basic questions, then aiming for higher is always a bonus. So a good candidate, once they pass the uh, exam and the examiner is asking a difficult question, it does not mean the examiner is trying to fail them or catch them out. It usually means we're trying to push them to sevens and eights. I have a question. So not all registrars will have this very detailed, wide exposure to specialties such as pediatric orthopedics. So what is your advice to those who may have had none or very little, a couple of months, or some of them in some rotations I hear nowadays, they only go to clinics and have never seen surgeries. So what is your advice? How do they best prepare for the vivas and clinicals for pediatric orthopedics? I think that's a, that's a very important question because this exam has been going on for best part of 25, 30 years. And even from its inception, the the fail rate in children's and hand services or hand examinations remains the, the highest. And the main reason for that is both of those services are in short supply in rotations. Not every candidate gets an opportunity to spend, let's say, six months. And even the ones come to Stanmore, they spend three months with each one of us. Now, during those six months, you may see a breadth of pathology, but you may you more than likely not to have seen all the children's orthopedics. So attending a clinic, talking to your examiners, uh, sorry, to, to your consultants who have an interest like yourself in teaching, it's always helpful. Or going to specialist clinics if you have any doubts, going to, to find somebody. I mean, people come to us in Stanmore. People go to, uh, I'm sure, to, to your, your clinics as well. Uh, and taking them through some basic cases is, is always helpful. Absolutely. I think it's key to find the appropriate people who are interested to pass on their knowledge. Not everybody does. Not, you know, there's the stress there of the clinic or the operating theatre. And um, you are one of them. I know that for a fact when I was your fellow uh, a few years back. Fantastic. Gavin, um, do you have any other questions before we go more into pediatric orthopedics? Yeah, uh, Tahir, I just wanted to ask you. So when, when the candidate sits down, do you have in your mind a series of questions that you're definitely going to ask every candidate? Or do you vary the questions according to what direction the candidate takes the viva in? I, I'm trying to get at how do you score a six and how do you get yourself in that position where you get a seven and an eight? What is it that makes the difference so, so every uh, question that we ask has been checked by a group of examiners before we ask the candidate. And there is always a theme. So the first question is usually the competency question. So if the, the first question usually has to be, is the candidate competent enough in that particular area that is being checked? So the theme remains the same for every candidate. But following that competency question, a lot of the time, candidate would guide the viva. So uh, as we talked earlier on about Perthes disease, so uh, that's a very pertinent example. So if, if somebody wants to talk about Perthes disease and wants to go into the classification and the pathology of it, that's fair enough. And if another candidate comes in and they want to talk about management of it, well, that's fair enough as well. Uh, and most examiners would go with that. But they would have uh, a beyond competency question 
are below competency question as well. So if you ask how would you classify, so, so, so you show a picture of a, an x-ray of Perthes disease and you want to talk about classification. Now that would be a competency question and the person does not know classification, for example. So then you need to go below that and you say, well, what is happening in, in this bone? Is this a vascular necrosis? And if the candidate does not know that, they score below six. Whereas if somebody goes through classification and then they say, well, there's a B oblique C as well, and then we're going to talk about uh, femoral osteotomies, they go beyond competency and then you can push them into that area. So if they go beyond competency, now we're getting into the sevens and the eights, correct? Correct. So how do you score that? Do you score that by knowing the recent literature or is it more a question of how you present yourself and how you make your arguments and how logical you are? Or is it any number of these things that, that can score you the seven or the eight? Yeah, well, a bit of both, really. So, so to get an eight, you need to be able to quote and defend the literature you're quoting from. So you, you need to be able to critique that literature. So if, for example, somebody is talking about Herring's classification and they bring in B oblique C, and they quote in that multi-center randomized trial, and they say, well, this is why B oblique C was introduced. And then if the examiner wants to, and these are usually the candidates who have passed in the first three minutes. So you have still two minutes to go by, and, and those two minutes can be long two minutes for the candidate and the examiner both. Because uh, we have been situation a couple of times where you run out of questions and, and you don't know what to ask. And they are the ones who score eights. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to ask you this uh, now, Ty. So, um, I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're allowed to say this, you know, in public, but, you know, you're going to tell us. But have you been asked by the examiner committee to, let's say, not do pediatric orthopedics and let's say, let's say do upper limb or do spine or vice versa, you know, having a spine surgeon doing pediatric orthopedics? Because I think if that's the case, you know, they, they can do the competency. But when it comes to like references and then defending this, the, the examiner might finding also difficult to, to know this kind of knowledge. I, you know, is that true? And then if that's the case, how do you give the aids then if that's not your main specialty area as an examiner? So I think I'm quite fortunate that there's always a shortage of children's examiners, children's orthopedic examiners. So, so I examine in basic sciences, children's, and very rarely in trauma, which I try not to because I don't do trauma for the last 10 years. And I think one of the reasons the candidates struggle in children's and hand vivas is that because most examiners in children's and hands are specialist examiners. That's their own area of specialty. Whereas most of the trauma and pathology examiners, they are more general, generalist examiners. So they, must be, they might be hip and knee surgeon, they might be soft tissue knee surgeon, maybe a spinal surgeon examining trauma, and they would struggle with being up to date. Whereas most children's and hand examiners are usually up to date with their specialty. And hence the candidates struggle to bluff. So they really have to be good at pediatric orthopedics to, uh, to pass. That's true. That's very, very true. So the, the, in a trauma viva, for example, let's say you, you use your example. So let's say I was examining in trauma and the candidate comes in and, and quotes a very a reference, a very obscure paper, which I haven't read. Now, I'll struggle to challenge that exam uh, candidate about that particular t paper and give the benefit of doubt to the candidate and say, well, if he's quoting it, they must know about it. Whereas if they try to do that in children's, I'm more likely to have read that paper. 
Fantastic. I think I uh, quite like to um, to ask you some more pediatric orthopedic specific uh, scenarios, and and see how how ideally uh, the candidate should tackle them. And uh, let's say, for example, um, oh, before we go there, just tell us what are the the kind of uh, usual topics that would come into into the exam. I think children's orthopedics is. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree from the examination point of view, a, a very limited uh, list of cases. So everybody has to know about hip dysplasia, slipped upper femoral epiphysis, club foot, uh, supracondylar fracture, forearm fracture, non-accidental injury. And, and the list probably doesn't go beyond 10 to 15 topics. The problem is that hip dysplasia, for example, it can be, it's not just a single disease. I mean, a hip dysplasia in somebody at birth is different than hip dysplasia in somebody who's six-year-old. Now, the candidates struggle with that, and they try and apply the same principles. So I had a candidate some time ago who said they wanted to do an orthogram in somebody who's 15-year-old presenting with previously treated dysplastic hip. Now, I mean, this is the ossified hip. Yeah, you can do orthogram, and, and the question then is they have to defend it. I mean, some of our colleagues do do that. But then you have to have a specific question to answer. And if the candidate cannot defend it, then it's very easy to find out that they're bluffing. So let's take DDH, because I think dysplasia is, is, is a very, uh, as you said, very typical topic. And then, you know, every candidate should expect to have that coming. So are they expected to know, to, to recognize and talk about, for example, ultrasound scans of uh, neonatal hips? Definitely. I think that has been discussed numerous times and there are units in UK and actually this exam, this question is there in the international FRCS ortho as well. And we had a candidate who complained about it, but there are units in UK who do their own ultrasounds. So the orthopedic surgeons do their own ultrasounds and hence they are very keen. And although I don't do my own ultrasounds, I'm quite keen that the candidate should know the basics of looking at the pediatric ultrasound scan. Absolutely, I would definitely agree with that. And uh, and when we're talking about ultrasound, we're talking about the principles of graph ultrasound. Is is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So they need to know which is an appropriate ultrasound scan. That's the first thing they should be commenting on. And if they can't see the femoral head, they can't see the uh, the acetabulum properly. They are within their right to say, well, this is not good enough ultrasound scan to comment on. But they need to be able to draw a femoral head, an acetabulum give an idea of the limbus, uh, the, the labrum, and be able to comment if it is a concentrically placed femoral head or not. And how about uh, new things like new guidelines? Let's say the new NIPI guidelines now, which have just been introduced, you know, last year. And, you know, every department had to change their, their, their targets and when we do the ultrasound scans. Is that things that they need to know or is this just gives you the extra bonus? Yeah, that's a beyond competency. So if somebody, if we're talking about the NPE guidelines, then they, they are going to sevens and eights. If they don't know about it, it would not go, it would not fail them. Let's put it like that. So tell us a bit more then when you, I presume, you know, you have a baby, you know, with DDH, what are the things that uh, the, uh, the candidate should say to pass the exam? And what are the things that will give you the aid? Yeah, so it's rare to have a clinical case, although when I conducted the exam in Manchester, when I organized the exam in Manchester, we did have a child with a congenital pseudoarthrosis of tibia, and they, the family came in all three days of the exam. 
So they did have a short case, but it's rare to have a short case of a child, let's say for a dysplastic hip. The bottom line is that if it, it would be more likely to be a table viva. So to get an eight in a, let's say club foot scenario, uh, we show them a picture and they can classify club foot. They can talk about Dimaglio and Bonsatti. They, they can talk about the pros and cons of both approaches. They can talk about the uh, management of a relapsing club foot. And they can go on to Pirani classification and when to do TBRS and TA transfer. That will take them to eight. And if they can quote a couple of papers in that, they will certainly get an eight. And if you think about it, it's, it's not too difficult. It doesn't seem too difficult when it's cold, when the pressure's on you. <laughs> I think <laughs> I a, lot of, a lot of people would say it's incredibly difficult. I mean, on that subject, there's obviously, as you said right at the start of, of this podcast, you know, you've got to have your basic knowledge. Then you've got to think about how you're going to present yourself and how you're going to interact with the examiner. And I guess there's, there's two points about that, isn't there? There's, there's the point about having a conversation and letting this conversation develop rather than it being a, a monologue. And then there's the sort of whole nonverbal cues that you're giving the examiner. Any tips, any advice for, for people presenting themselves for these uh, exams, either in terms of the table viva or also, I guess, how they interact with families. If you, if you bring the candidate before a clinical case, then they have to interact with the kid and interact with the family. It's important to make a good impression, right? Yeah, well, table manners are very important. Of, of course they are. We had a candidate who came in jeans. Uh, we had to talk to each other and say, well, we can't count it against that person. But there were examiners who said, well, I don't go to my clinic in jeans. So if that was my registrar, I'll send him back home. Now, that is not a good time, good, good place to start from. There was a time when uh, I think the uh, examiners were very keen that people should wear a necktie. I, I don't think that's the case anymore. So if the candidates come in uh, with an open neck, it's, it's fine. The other thing is most of the time, most examiners would offer a glass of water to the candidates. And that's literally, we're not trying to be nasty to, to, to the candidates. But, you know, having a sip of water, maintaining a, a bit of an eye contact, it, it, it's a good idea. Trying to look over the examiner or try to stare the examiner down, having a, a power struggle there, it, it, it's not good. It doesn't, doesn't come out good. And the age-old thing, if the examiners, if the candidates, uh, sorry, if the patient says, ouch, you've done something wrong. Now, you don't fail on that. But if you, if you continue to hurt the patient, uh, there have been situations I had to take the candidate away from the patient. As I said, there's not many children's short or intermediate cases, but we do always get a, a rheumatoid hand uh, and they can be in pain. If, if the patient is not comfortable, you should notice that and say to the examiner that patient is not comfortable, I don't feel confident to carry on. And the most examiners would know that anyway, and they'll give you the findings. What about, is there any equipment that you would expect uh, a candidate to bring with them? Uh, or is generally any equipment that you might need for a particular clinical case going to be available in, in the room? I'm thinking of things like tape measures, blocks, goniometers, those kind of things. The candidates do bring it, uh, and that, that shows their professionalism, and that, that's a good idea, but it's usually provided. So if, if we have a case where a particular equipment would be needed, we would make sure it's available. I'd, I'd like to ask about eponymous. You know, in pediatric orthopedics, we have a lot of names. Let's say pelvic orthotomies. Do they need to know what is DEGA, SALTER, or do they need to know the names, or 
you know, describe what needs to happen when you have a child with um, a dysplastic acetabulum at the age of six and you need to do a reorientation of the or do they need to know those eponyms, Salter, Dega, Pemberton, and what is this all about? Yeah, there are some examiners who insist on eponyms. I, for myself, I don't care too much about it, but what I do care about is that if they mention an eponym, they should know exactly what they're talking about. So if, for example, they say a, a Dega or a Pemberton osteotomy, they need to know what is the difference between the two. So I personally, when I take guys through the practice vivas, I normally say avoid eponyms because if you put a, if you mention an eponym, you have to know it. And that usually, in pelvic osteotomy, it's usually not that hard. But when they go into clubfoot management, so the commonest example is they say, well, I'll treat it with a Ponsetti method. Well, they need to know Ponsetti method. They cannot say Ponsetti and then say, well, I'm going to put tapes and physiotherapy and not talk about the weekly change of plastic cast and know the principles behind it. So only mention what you're, um, you're happy to talk about. Otherwise, Correct. avoid it. That's, that's, that's a great message. And sometimes I presume most of the examiners would, would like to, to ask about something. So you mention an eponym and you just, you just pause and you invite the examiner to ask you about this because that keeps on the, uh, the nice kind of um, rapport and communication with the examiner. Is that true? Yeah, so, so there are candidates who can control the viva and they can control their nerves better and they can basically play with the examiners and you, and you can find it out quite quickly. So they, as you, as you rightly say, they'll say something, they pause and then invite the next question which they know is bound to come and then they know the answer. Now, they, those candidates obviously do really, really well, but most, most of them are so confused that uh, they, they can't control it. That's certainly something that I've noticed in the practice courses that I've done with both of you. A common thing is for candidates to try and get as much information out in the first 60 seconds that they can. And people tend not to pause because they're worried if they pause, they're going to get asked something awkward. And I've always imagined that this is not a very productive way to move forward because it is supposed to be an interaction, right? I mean, else why would you invite people along for clinical exams? If the interaction was not important, you'd be much better off just doing MCQs. So that's what I've noticed in the practice exams. Is it the same in the real exam? It certainly is. Uh, and that usually works against the candidate. So I always say the candidates when I'm doing the mock vivas for them is that when you get a question in your head, count three, two, one, and then answer. And then once you've finished answering that particular question, then stop. Wait for the next question. Whereas very rightly, as you say, people just go into uh, a bit of a monologue and they just don't stop. They don't want to be interrupted. They just want to say everything. And what they don't realize is that the, the knowledge they might have, it's going to run out in less than five minutes. So there's going to be other things to talk about. Whereas if they paused, they could probably extend the same knowledge over a four and a half minute period. Absolutely. I think you, you said it to start with. You said active listening, which is very, very important for, for those kind of situations. And then the examiner is there to ask you questions. So give them the chance to ask you the questions he wants to do rather than having a monologue trying, trying to show off. Because I presume sometimes the examiner wants to show off. That's his case. He wants to, to pass on his knowledge and then guide this. So you, you have, the candidate has to give him that, uh, that opportunity. Yeah, well, the examiners do. I mean, it's less likely that you'll have your own cases now because all those cases that you 
contributed. They are now part of the pool. But, you know, about five, six years ago, that was an important, you know, examiners did like to show off. You know, I had this difficult case and, and if the candidate agreed, it used to go in their favour, but not anymore. Just out of interest, is, is the Viva and the clinical exam here to stay? Is it true, the rumours that I've heard that educationalists don't feel this is a very objective way to choose candidates? But obviously clinicians seem to like it because we've been doing exams that way for a long time. In the short term, certainly. I, I know there are people, the educationalists, as you call them, they, they feel that the exam could be made a, a bit more fairer because there is still a bit of a human factor uh, certainly in the clinical si- uh, side of things. Uh, I personally feel it'll be uh, a bad day for the, uh, for the fraternity of orthopedics if that bit goes. If it goes into the same way as MRCS are, uh, has gone, I, I think it's probably not going to be a very uh, a good way of having a final exam. So um, we're, we're running out of time now. I think we're, we're down to our last few minutes. Michaelis, is there any other points you wanted to put to Tahir or, or any other points you wanted to bring across yourself? Well, I would say that everyone listening to this podcast should really play it again and again because I think Tahi came with some fantastic suggestions, not just when it comes to pediatric orthopedics, but in general, how you should approach this. Because sometimes knowledge is good and you need to have the knowledge, but you can affect the outcome of your exam by just doing some very uh, very obvious things which are not obvious for everyone especially when you know this is this is high pressure time from my point of view i'd like to thank tahi for this i have no other questions i think that's 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 a it's a wonderful way uh, and suggestions how to to approach the uh, the viva and clinical frcs exams absolutely tahir we can't thank you enough thank you so much for for giving us your time and being so candid and and honest in your answers i'm sure Uh, people will realize this is real gold dust information it's really hard to get that information for a lot of people so i'm i'm sure they will have found that useful i hope you have Uh, if you're listening into this podcast thanks very much for joining us i hope you've enjoyed it i hope you've picked up some tips and please join us for more podcasts uh, later on in the series thanks very much that's all for now good night